Go to Matthew 6. All right, excellent. Matthew 6. We've already read the text, so I won't go through reading the text. So, oh, good. Roger's coming up to sit with his wife. I was wondering if they really needed that Bible study coming up here. I saw him sitting in the back, and I wasn't sure, so. uh. (laughs) All right. Um, I've already read the text. I won't read it again right now, but what I will do is I just want to remind us a little bit about where we've been um, in this series. You got to remember, when Jesus started this sermon at the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, he was talking to his disciples. The disciples that he's called out there, a very small group of people, 12 people, that he's sitting there. And then over the course of the sermon that he gives, the, the crowd increases until at the end, in chapter 7, there's, there's a great crowd that have, has assembled by this time. They had, they'd seen him teaching. He was pretty popular, and so, or he was gaining in popularity is probably a more accurate thing to say. And... Um, a greater crowd had, had assembled. But the reason why I bring that up is because we always got to remember who the original audience was of the sermon. Because that tells us a little bit about what Jesus was trying to communicate. And so these were disciples of his people who would claim to follow Jesus, who said that they were going to follow him. And so that's when we look at this, we say, okay, this is the intended audience of people who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ. He begins his sermon, he, he, he talks a little bit about what that means and what we have come to know as the Beatitudes in the first few verses there. And he starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've mentioned this before that he begins the sermon by saying who is going to be in the kingdom. And then he ends the sermon in chapter 7 with saying who is not going to be in the kingdom. And as I've said before, both are equally shocking And we're equally shocking to the people who are listening. He describes these disciples. He describes the citizen of the kingdom. Basically what he's saying, he's saying if if you're a a citizen of the kingdom, this is what you are. And he gives some metaphors and salt and light. He says, this is the hope of the world. The citizens of the kingdom, the future kingdoms coming. He says, the plan that I have, the hope that I have is going to work through these citizens because you indeed are salt. You indeed are light. And we talked about how that, that's not saying that you should become salt or you should become light in this community. What Jesus is saying, he says, you are it. Now, to varying degrees of brilliance and to varying degrees of saltiness, you are the salt and light in this community. And so we are part of, since we're disciples of Christ and we're not the only ones, there are other churches of people who follow Jesus Christ and things like that. But this church right here is salt and light intended for Verona. You are salt and light intended for your neighborhood. And so that, by virtue of just being a disciple of Christ, he says, this is the plan. This is how the world's going to get light. This is how the world's going to get flavor. This is going to how the world's going to be preserved from judgment is through my disciples. And so that's what he's saying here. And then he says this. He says, so therefore, in verse 16 of chapter 5, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. He says, your life should be radically different than those around you. 
The, the, the person who is a citizen of the kingdom of God should do life completely different. Now, we have opportunities to see, even in our own country, vastly different ways of living. Um, I've lived in a few different places in the, in the country. I've, uh, I spent three years in Rhode Island. I spent about six months down in Louisiana. I grew up in Michigan. I've lived, I spent 10 years in Illinois, and now I've spent uh, four years in Wisconsin, and then even when I was in college, so that's an additional about four years as well that I've lived in Wisconsin, so about eight years total. So I've lived in different parts of the country, and um, I can tell you, and some of you have these experiences as well, that where you live is, is different. People live differently. They say things differently. They, they, the values are different. Um, people drive differently. Uh, some people here, uh, in fact, it's very common for me to hear people talk disparagingly of Illinois drivers. Okay, I've heard some of you do that as well. Well, let me just tell you, people in Illinois say the same thing about you, all right, <laughs> about the Wisconsin drivers, okay? Um, everyone thinks that uh, we're simultaneously the best and worst drivers around, um, but things are different. Uh, values are different. It would, be, it, it would be of no shock to anyone, and, and I would get one reaction if I were to go to the mall and I would place upon my head a wedge of cheese and walk around the mall. And people would respond one way. But if I were to go to Chicago or Detroit and do the exact same thing, I would get a completely different response, right? Okay? Because where we're at or the place that we are a citizen of It has different ways of living. What Jesus is saying in this text here, he's saying, look, you are not citizens of this world. Stop acting like that. You're a citizen of a different country. You are a kingdom citizen. If you're a disciple of Christ, then so that means you're different. And so in the end of chapter 5, he talks about the heart of this exceeding righteousness because he says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. So basically, if you're a member of the kingdom, member of God's kingdom, your righteousness has to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, again, that would have been shocking to the people who first heard this. And we always got to go back and kind of try to listen through their ears and see things through their eyes as much as possible to get what Jesus was doing here. And what he's saying, he's saying, look, the most spiritual people that you can think of, you've got to be better than them. But then he goes to define that. I'm glad he didn't end that there. Could you imagine how hopeless we would have felt if he ended at the sermon at verse 20? He kept going, though. He kept going into the sermon, and he describes what that looks like. And we talked about the heart of exceeding righteousness, of how that it's not so much about actions, it's about motivation and why we do what we do. And he talks about even loving your enemies, and then he ends that way and basically says, you got to be perfect, okay? Now, he's setting us up for an impossible task, and, and we know that later on it's, it's Jesus' righteousness. It's Jesus, what he accomplishes for us. What he's basically laying out for us is that we can never live in such a way that would earn our place in the kingdom. But we are required, we are asked to live in such a way that reflects that citizenship. 
And that only comes after a relationship has been established with Jesus Christ. Last week we began in chapter 6 where it talked about, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen of them. And so what he talks about in chapter 6, beginning chapter 6, was the danger with living exceedingly righteous lives, is that there's dangers that we often um, uh, uh, are easily falling into of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And then today we're going to pick up in verse 19. I'm going to continue on a little bit with the theme that we started last week, and I'm entitling this first point, The Threat to Living Exceedingly Righteous Lives. So if you're taking notes, we have two points today. The first one is the threat to living exceedingly righteous lives, and the second point will be the security of living exceedingly righteous lives. So first of all, the threat. What is the threat that we face upon us that hinders us from living the life, that kingdom living, that living as a citizen of God's kingdom, what are these threats that we face all the time? Well, the first one we've, we talked about last week, and so I'm not really going to spend much time about it, and that is pursuing the praise of man. We talked about that last week of how that we have this threat of performing for the praise of man. That is a threat to kingdom living because it means that we are no longer than living for the king, we're living for people around us. Now, again, because we covered this last week, we'll, we're not going to spend much time on that. But what we do see in verse 19 of chapter 6, an introduction to another threat, and that is this, misplaced values. That means placing our treasures on the earth. Here's a threat there. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those misplaced values, often we, as we walk this life, as we make our pilgrimage through this earth and we live the life that God has given for us to live, often we get distracted, do we not? Do do we not sometimes make a bigger deal out of things than what we should? Do Do we not often place a greater emphasis on something that should not have that much emphasis? Do we often lose sleep over things that really do not matter? You see, this is what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying that sometimes, as we're, here's a threat to kingdom living, the threat to live in this exceedingly righteous life that I've called you to live. It says, you know, make sure your values are in the right place. Make sure what, what I consider God saying, make sure what I consider is great, you consider great. But don't, 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 don't put into that category things that just do not matter. Don't, don't live this life for treasures and for rewards and for things that aren't going to last, he says. And so there's, there's, there's some pragmatic reasons that Jesus brings this up. He says it's vulnerable and it's not going to last anyway. So the treasures that we often spend so much of our energy and time and our, and our uh, emotions pursuing, Jesus here is saying it's not going to last. The, the house is going to burn or it's going to fall down one day. The car is going to rust. Your body will decay and you won't be able to do the things that you used to do. 
Now, most of us realize that. There's some of you in this room right now that haven't learned that lesson yet. But most of us here understand that we can't do the things that we used to do. Occasionally, I will uh, pick up a basketball and start playing basketball again. And I used to love to play basketball. Played it all the time. uh, Enjoyed it. Just loved playing basketball. And occasionally, you know, we'll... Mike and I, maybe we'll, we'll pick up a basketball and shoot down in the gym or something like that. And, and inevitably, this happens. Um, I make one or two shots after half hour. And, um, you know, we start going. And then in my mind, because I used to play basketball, I used to coach basketball. I mean, I know. I know the game. I know the game. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if I cross over here and cut this way and then come back, then I can go on the other side of the hoop and put it in and off the backboard. Just put a little spin as I put it up there. It's going to go right in. And then I start to go that way. And guess what happens? My body says, where are you going? <laughs> that was a great idea. And I just, you know, I, I just don't have it anymore. Okay. Our bodies decay. You know, the text here says we're moth uh, and rust, destroy. And then even if we do have some item that doesn't depreciate, or if we do have a treasure that doesn't, a moth can't get to, or rust can't get to, or decay can't get to, what if we had some treasure that does last, like gold or something like that, and it lasts? Then we have the threat, the vulnerable, it's vulnerable of thieves breaking in and stealing. And so there's no security in this. And so what Jesus is saying, he says, don't pursue pragmatically, just pragmatically. Don't spend so much time and energy and emotion pursuing things that aren't going to last. But let's look at our lives for a second. How much of our energy, how much of our money, how much of our time, how much of our emotions get sunk into things that just are, quite frankly, they're not going to last. And what Jesus is saying, he said, no, don't do this. Don't do this because if you're living as a citizen of the kingdom, then your eyes are fixed on eternity, not on temporal things. We talked about that last week. You know, um, we can't take things with us as much as we want to try. In in my study for the sermon, I came across this illustration of the story. You may have heard it before or a variation of it. But the story goes that there was a man who was a, was a wealthy man who died, and um, he got together his, his uh, three friends. It was the proverbial, one was a doctor, one was a minister, and one was a lawyer, okay? So you can see where this is going right now, right? Okay. So he says, look, I'm telling you, he says, I can't, they, they tell me I can't take my millions with me, but I'm going to try. So here's three envelopes. In it are a million dollars each. Okay, and so when they lower my casket into the ground, you're my three trusted friends. I want you to throw in these envelopes of Mendel's cash in. Okay, so they agreed to do this. David's funeral comes, they're lowering him into the ground. Uh, They all throw their envelopes in, and then they're leaving. And the minister just just feels like he's got this guilty conscience, so he confesses to the other two. He says, Look, we're in the middle of a building program at church. We've, we're, we're busting at the scenes. He goes, I, I, I took, I took, you know, seven hundred thousand dollars and um, put in the envelope, and I threw it in there, and I kept the other three hundred thousand dollars. Well, then the uh, the uh, the doctor says, well, look, you know, I, I'm trying to build this hospital and so everything, so I took half and, and I threw it in there. 
And then the lawyer looks at him and says, I am shocked at you guys. He says, I put a check in for the full amount. <laughs> now, we can laugh, okay, all right, at that. And we can laugh at the absurd idea of someone trying to take their money with them. But I wonder if we were to look at how, what we place most valuable in our lives, I wonder how many times we act as if we are going to have something for eternity. I mean, think about the things that you were so excited about at one time to have, and now you don't even use anymore. Uh, you know, we were talking in, in, in uh, um, Adult Discipleship Hour, and, and Barbara uh, shared a story of how that she, she had a tablecloth, and, and she's like, I'm going to save this for a special occasion. And she put it into the drawer, and, and I'm going to save it for a special occasion. She pulls it out, and moths... Had lit, I, mean, I mean, this text came alive to her, okay? Where, and it just destroyed it, right? Things, things, we, we, things that we are going to save or things that we want to hold on to, it just doesn't last. And what Jesus is saying, he says, when we have misplaced values, misplaced treasure, it's a threat to how we're supposed to be living. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you claim to be a disciple of Christ, can I please just urge you to not get so caught up in treasures here? Can, can, I, can, I, can, I, can I plead with you to say, you need to be putting your eyes towards eternity and saying, what is going to last for eternity? All these things, you know, our houses, our boats, our, our campers, our whatever it is, our, our, uh, our entertainment, our TVs, all of that is going to perish. The things that we want so much when it first comes out, the new smartphone, the new computer, whatever it is, it's going to burn. So Jesus is saying, live as, as, a, as a kingdom of, an, uh, as a person of an eternal kingdom, not a temporal kingdom. Misplaced values here. So practically, it's vulnerable, will not last away, but, or pragmatically. Practically, though, he gives us interesting illustration in verses 22 and 23. And I'm going to tell you, of all my study for this sermon, I spent the most time trying to figure out what those two verses meant, okay? And I think I'm there, okay? Now, there's a little bit of this debate about what those verses mean and, and the illustration that he's trying to give or why that's an illustration. Let me read it to you. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So right there, we're like, what in the world is he talking about there? So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Thanks, Jesus, for that clear illustration. Okay? Now, part of the problem is, is that he's using some metaphors and figures of speech and some words that would have made more sense to the original hearers than to us. Um, sometimes when you go from one language to the other, wordplay, idioms, things like that, it doesn't translate too well. And I think that's kind of what's happening here is that we know enough to get his sense, but it's, it does, it's not natural to us. Where it meant to the, the original hearer, it would have been much more natural for them to understand it. Basically, the best I understand, because there's a, lot, there's a couple different ways to understand these things, um, in some ways, that the, the, the healthy eye is also referred to as a singular eye, and the, the, the bad eye is, is also talked about a, uh, an evil eye or a selfish eye. So some people say that what he's saying here is that the healthy eye is a generous eye, 
and the evil eye or the bad eye is a selfish eye. That may be true because linguistically it's possible. But what I think he's getting at here is this. Your vision affects your entire body or your entire life. I think that's what he's getting at here. I think that's the main point. He's saying that what you see determines what you can do. Okay, And how well you see or the health of your eyes determines your abilities and things of what you can do with your life. Okay, And so, for instance, if you have good vision, you can drive a car. If over time you lose your vision, you can no longer drive a car, right? Okay, So the things that you can do or the, the activities that your whole entire body can participate in are dependent upon the health of the eye. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. And so what he's saying here, he's, he's saying that what you do, the goals, the purpose, what you set your attention and your affections upon will determine how you live your life. I believe that's what he's getting at. And so wherever your affections are, because we have to interpret this through the context, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so wherever we place our value, that will determine how we live our lives. And so we can flip that around. We can say that we can show what someone values by how they live their life. We, we can see what is most important to somebody by how they spend their money, by how they spend their time, by what they fill their life's activities with. And so what he's getting at practically, he's saying that your vision affects your whole life. And so he's saying, what are you giving your entire life to? What is your goal? Recently, I came across uh, this TV show on the History Channel. Um, I think it's called The Curse of Oak Island. Okay, has anyone seen this? Okay, am I the only one? Okay, maybe, okay, all right, okay, okay, okay. Raise your hands proud if you've seen this show. Okay, good, all right, I'm not the only one. All right, okay. All right, so we have the show, and, and it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, you know, the, the brothers, they're, they're the two business guys from Michigan that, that find this island up near Nova Scotia, I think it is, and, um, and they're looking for this treasure that's, that's supposedly been there for a couple hundred years, and uh, there's a lot of of, uh, you know, things that have gone wrong, and there's made some pretty interesting discoveries and things like that. And so I'm watching this, and the the season finale was just the other day, and I happened to catch it. And so I'm watching all these things, and um, you know what thought went through my mind as I'm watching this? I thought, I wonder how many millions of dollars they have spent looking for this treasure, I, I wonder, I wonder, you know, I mean, because, I mean, they, they're bringing in all these crews, and they're doing all these digs, and I mean, this stuff is not cheap, and they're spending so much time and so much energy and so much money on finding this hidden treasure, and they fully recognize the treasure may not even be there. They just want to find out where it was. Now, I'm not, I mean, that's their own decisions, what they want to do with it, but my point is this, is that you can look at those brothers, and you can say, what is important to them? They have given their lives. One brother in particular has given his entire life since he was 11 years old to studying this puzzle of where is this treasure or whatever happened to it. I wonder what, if we look at our lives and say, how, how much energy are we, are we spending on things that just will not last? 
You see, practically what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, you need to look at your life because that's going to tell you what is most important to you. And we can take even good things, right? We can take even good things and turn them wrong. We can say things like, we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school today of, of, of you know, I, I need to be accepted. I need to be accepted by my friends. I need to be accepted by my church. I need to be accepted by my coworkers. I need to be accepted by my family, by my kids. And if that is our first and overwhelming desire, that is going to cause so much stress in our lives. It's going to cause so much, so much uh, uh, difficulty. Because remember, this was something earlier he had said. Remember, he said that looking, performing for the praise of man, that's a threat to kingdom living. What Jesus is saying here, he's saying, no, 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 no. Make your pursuits, your life's pursuits, things that are going to last for eternity. And so, I, you know, one way that Jesus says that we can figure this out, he says in the end of verse 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You've no doubt heard the phrase, follow the money, right? So you can follow a path of how, what, what we spend our money on. And our treasures on. Whatever we spend, we can see what is most important to us. So let me illustrate this. Imagine this. Imagine that you are a citizen of a different country. A country where Christianity is illegal. Being known as a disciple of Jesus Christ would place you in prison. Okay? So that's where we're at. We've all been transported there. This is where we're living. Let me ask you this. Let's say that you were accused of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're brought into court. And you said, hey, this person, this man, this woman is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, this is illegal where we're at now. And so you know that the judge, if, if this is true, he's going to put you in prison. Okay. So the judge asked a simple question. He says to the attorney, he says, what proof do you have of this? And the person produces, the only thing I have is how they spend their money and how they spend their time. If that is the evidence that is brought against you, would you be convicted of being a disciple of Christ? If the only evidence against you brought against you is how you spend your money, how you spend your time, would the judge say, ah, clearly this is a disciple of Christ? Or would they say, maybe he's got a hobby. Maybe he's not truly a disciple. You see, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, where your treasure is, there is your heart. So this is a threat to kingdom living but there's a theological implication. There's a pragmatic, it doesn't last. There's practically what our vision, what we set our affections on, affect our entire lives. But then there's a theological implication here. And we see this in verse 24. It says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The theological implication that Jesus is getting at here is that if we are doing what he's saying here, if we're laying treasures up on earth, then you are serving a false god. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying this is an either-or proposition in verse 24. 
He doesn't say that you can do both. He says that this is not something that you do part-time. This is something that is, is a full-time commitment. And so if you're a disciple of Christ, if I'm a disciple of Christ, then what is expected of me by the one who saved me is that all of my life is his. Uh, Chad, in Adult Deception Power, he, he illustrated by, I'm not going to jump like he did because he does it much more gracefully than I would. Um, and if I did, there would be rumors of earthquakes. But there's, um, there's this, he said, he like jumps over and he's like, you know, everything is in the offering box. You know, not just money, our, our whole lives is what he was, and he was using the metaphor of the offering box of just basically saying that, that if you're a disciple of Christ, we're all in. This isn't just a weekend hobby. This isn't just something that we do as we have time. And this is something that we hope our kids are going to catch maybe or they're going to make their own decisions on. No, this is something that should, should, we should be obsessing about of passing on to the next generation. Because this is, we're talking about eternal matters here. This is like eternity at stake here. This is not just whether or not someone's going to continue in on a club membership or not. So Jesus is saying, he's saying, theologically, don't serve a false god. Serve me. And you think, well, I don't know about serving God, serving false gods. That seems kind of harsh. Is, is that possible? You know, in my Bible reading, I'm, I'm slowly working my way through a chronological study of, of the Bible. And, and, you know, they have it set up for, like, to do it in a year. And I think I'm, like, a month behind. But I'm just slowly working through it. So I, uh, just yesterday, I read through Genesis 35. And in that, there's an interesting thing that happens in Genesis 35. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, he's getting ready to move. And so this is a guy who is part of the patriarchal family. This is a guy who God had promised him would be, you know, God would, would give him land, give him blessing. So this was a guy who knew God. And it was interesting in Genesis 35, it says that he's getting ready to leave. And so he says something to the people around him and the author of Genesis says to his household. He says, put away the false gods that are among you. And so they take all the gods that gave him and they bury him under a tree. As I read that, I thought, man, if, if anyone who would know not to have a false god, do you think it would be Jacob and his family? But yet, it's a, it, it affects us. One of the things I think we could take away from this text, and is, I'm not going to make this the main point, but I will say this. I think we should see of how, um, we should, let me say it this way, the permeating effect of sin. We are so um, vulnerable to these things that we're reading here. And so if you're reading this and you're not saying, man, how am I doing this? You're missing it. Because every one of us, myself included, I'm telling you, every one of us are, are, are capable and we probably have effects of these things in our lives all the time. Now the good thing is, is that we stand not on our own righteousness, but Jesus' righteousness. For eternity. But we're supposed to live that out. We're supposed to live this exceeding righteousness out. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure that we don't have misplaced values here. I need to move on. What's another threat? The last threat that I'm going to talk about this morning is, starts in verse 25. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and its anxious living. I want to be careful with this. I've spent a lot of time praying about this part of the sermon because um, I don't want to minimize anxiety. Uh, there's a lot of us that struggle with this, so even, even, even in our church congregation. I, I know it. It's a very difficult thing to work through. It's, um, some of you can't understand it at all. You're just like, I don't, I don't get it. But others you know very acutely of what it's like to live an anxious life. And so the, the solutions that are given in this text, I, I don't mean to see, seem simplistic or, or to gloss over the, the actual difficulty of the trial. But often, a difficult trial has simple solutions. In fact, we, we know what to do most of the time, but it's hard to actually live it out. It's simple in the, in, in the prescription, but actually the implementation of it is very difficult. And I think we're going to see that here. This anxious living here is a threat to our living, exceedingly righteous lives. He says, don't be anxious. And he gives some reasons. He discusses this a little bit here. Pragmatically, he says in verse 27, it's not going to make a difference. So he says, don't live an anxious life because it's not going to make a difference anyway. It's not going to make a difference. In verse 27, he says, for which one of you can, can add to your life? Which one of you can add to your life by worrying, basically? So pragmatically, just pragmatically, and he's not even diving into it deeply here, but he says, anxiety and worry doesn't help you at all, so don't do it. But don't do it, because it doesn't help you at all. Practically, in verse 32, I think it, we see that it sets us up for misplaced values that we just spent some time talking about. He says in verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them all. He says the Gentiles, the people who aren't disciples of Christ, the people who do not know God, he says they're the ones that these are, they're so concerned about these things, these, these things of life, food, clothing, all these things. He says don't worry about that. That's not what our first and primary purpose should be to worry about. So when we have anxious hearts, it leads us to focusing on the wrong things. He says keep calm. God knows what you need. He says, your, your Heavenly Father already know, needs this. So you worrying about it is not helping God know something. It, it's not saying, like, God doesn't know that I need this right now. God knows it. So practically, it, indica- or it, it sets us up for misplaced values. But there's a theological implication here as well. And this is where I, I want to be very careful. But I, I got to preach what Jesus says, okay? He says... If God, verses, verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, theologically, when we live anxious lives and we tend to worry a lot, it really shows little faith. I want to be careful. Because I don't think what Jesus is saying here is that anytime we have a moment of anxiety that we have no faith at all. And I don't want to communicate that if you're anxious about something that you have denied God. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. But the answer then is faith in God. If, if little faith is, is, is the, the root of the anxiety according to Jesus in verse 30, then stronger faith is the answer. 
Now, we don't get stronger faith by just conjuring it up. We pray for it. But we also do things that we've, we talked about earlier is that we rehearse what we know about God. Because we worry when we forget. We worry when we forget. We forget who God is and what he has done. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's reminding us. He's using some arguments here from the lesser to the greater. He says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? He says, your Father, your heavenly Father feeds the birds. But again, we can't press the metaphors too far. This is not an, you know, an indictment against farming, okay? All right? No, we should farm and we should, we should do all that. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying we shouldn't worry so much about these things because God will take care of us. His nature, what we know of God, proves it to be true. And he, he says not only to birds, he says about the lilies of the field and the grass. He cares for, God cares for them, yet you're more valuable. The grass is going to be used as fuel in an oven. God makes sure that he cares for as well. And you are more valuable. So, I think the solution is this. That in moments of anxiety, and we all have them to one degree or another. In our moments of anxiety, what we know of God will determine how we make it through that trial. Because that is a trial. And maybe I should put it this way. Maybe I should rephrase that. What we remember about God in that moment. You see, this is why I, I tell people. Uh, I was recently asked a question. A um, person was asking about um, going through trials and how to be strong in going through trials. And they said, how is it that someone can go through a situation and have great faith and, and, and get through it? And other people don't. I said, well, number one, grace of God. I mean, we've got to start there. God's grace, God's mercy. I said, but one thing I've noticed, I've noticed a pattern. The people who, in the face of, of great trials, that, that can move through with faith and trust in God, they're the ones who have been rehearsing those truths to them, even in times of plenty and when times are good. But you see, if we just wait until the time gets difficult to start thinking about what God is doing... That is the wrong time to start thinking about that. We, we got we to build that up, build up what we know about God ahead of time. So that's why it's good to do what we did today and, and do these reminders of works of God and how we know or what we know of God. And so, you know, it was interesting to think about as, as you know, I hear Alex talking about that God's a companion and someone else that is forgiving and he's loving and he's always with us. He's ever present. All these things. These are great things to remind yourself of. And so this is why worship needs to happen every day. Not just on the weekends when you make it to church. See, worship needs to happen every day because that's going to strengthen you for when trials come. And we're tempted to have those moments of anxiety. And every one of us have it to one degree and another. So think about, what do you know of God? Well, I, recently I've been studying the names of God. El Roy, the God who sees. God knows. He sees you where you're at. There's never a time when God doesn't know your present circumstance. There's never a time where God says, hey, what, you know, what happened to JP? I kind of lost track of him. All right? We used to talk, man, whatever happened to that guy? 
You don't know. That never happens because God sees. How is that comforting when, I, when I'm tempted to be anxious about something? I know, God, God, you know, you see my state. You see where we're at. You know where that text, that, that name of God is found? It's found with Hagar when she's been cast aside and she's alone. She thinks she's going to die with her child. She feels utterly alone. And God appears to her and says, I'm the God who sees. I know you. You think that's not comforting in moments of anxiety? What else do we know about God? Elohim, he's creator, mighty, strong. He's the one who created us. He is mighty. He is strong. He has strength to get us through anything that, that comes our way. That helps me in moments of anxiety. El Shaddai, almighty God. There is nothing that is stronger than God. Nothing. There is nothing too big for him. There is nothing outside of his control. There is nothing. There's never a, point, a time where God looks at something and says, hmm, that's a good one. Hmm, what am I going to do about that? He's almighty. So when I'm tempted to be anxious about the health of my wife or this, the, the success of whatever, or wh- whatever I'm dealing with with my, with my anxiety, I look at God and say, El Shaddai, he's almighty. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He will provide for what we need. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord heals. He is the healing God. So that's why I prayed for Sally like I did. He's Jehovah Rapha. He can heal. We've seen that in our church of God healing people. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. When I have temptation to be anxious, I need to go back to say, but God, you are our peace. We have peace with God because of Jesus. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. It's not that I have to live a perfect life of righteousness in order for God to accept me. Jesus is my righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteous. And Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. We read that in Malachi. The Lord of hosts in the adult discipleship. We read that. The, the, and, and think about what that means. That means that he's the, he's the Lord over the host of the angelic armies. He's the Lord over everything. This is why Jesus says, he says, I could have called 10,000 angels down here. He, he, he's the Lord of hosts. He can do anything he wants. So any problem you find yourself in, any difficulty, any circumstance of life that is overwhelming you and tempted for you and tempting you to be anxious about, go back to Jehovah uh, uh, Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, and that, that he has command over everything. Think through these biblical examples. God, he, he provided for the wandering Israelites so he can provide for us as we wander. He's faithful to forgive, and he's shown that over and over again. You get the point. It's a good idea to rehearse to yourself what you know about God. It's a good idea to do that. Now, I spent much longer than I anticipated on this first point, so I'm not going to get into the second point today, okay? Some of you are breathing a sigh of relief at this point, okay? So I'm going to get into that next week, okay, about the actual security in this, but this is a threat to us, but I, I, I don't want to leave it here, okay? I do want to say this, that our answer is given in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. 
You know, this is going to, we, if we were to live that principle out, if every one of us were to live that principle out, we would be amazed at the things that God would do here. I'm telling you. We would not be attached to stuff anymore. We would not be pursuing the praise of man so much. We wouldn't be as anxious. We would be trusting in the peace of God. So, Jesus says, be a disciple. And to be a disciple, that means don't put your treasures on earth. Put them up in heaven. Live for eternity. Don't live for this world. All the things that mean so much to us, that capture our attention, that capture our longings and our desires of things that we just want to do every weekend or every day or whatever it is, does that have an eternal component to it? If not, well, it may not be wrong, it probably should take a back seat. Yeah, it should take a back seat. So lay not for yourselves up with treasures on earth where moth and rust is corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would live as disciples of Jesus Christ, that we would be people who are committed to following you and being uh, true disciples of yours. We love you very much. Father, I do pray that we would take our discipleship seriously. I think I'm speaking to the majority of people here who would claim to be a disciple of yours. And so if that's the case, then I pray that, that they would live, let me include myself here, that we, that we would live this life according to how Jesus has prescribed for us. Lord, we're thankful that you are a righteousness, that the commands that are given here are not given so that we earn our way to heaven. Help us not to make that mistake. But there are commands given to, to show the fruit that we have been redeemed by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's people here today, and I'm sure there are, who are not true disciples of yours, regardless if they grew up in church or not, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that today would be the day that your spirit just draws their hearts to you. In Christ's name we do pray, amen.